I am joined once again by Daniel DiMartino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist of QI Research. Daniel, great to have you back on Forward Guidance. It's great to be here, Jack. Great, great, great to be here. Daniel, I think it's a sign of the times of just how quickly things are moving and how much is going on that you're back so soon. Uh, yesterday, Fedger J. Powell gave uh, his speech raised by 25 basis points as we, uh, as you know, many people expected. But he began the speech by saying that conditions in the banking se- sector have improved. And about exactly, actually, two hours later, shares of uh, a PacWest Bank uh, were cut in half, 50%. And there's a lot of turmoil in the banking sector right today, just in terms of the shares with Western Alliance, Pac- PacWest, uh, and, and other banks as well. Just how did you experience that two hours, let's say between 2.30 p.m. when Jay Powell said conditions of the banking sector have improved since March, and then 4.30 p.m. when PacWest shares were cut in half? And my perspective is that Jay Powell is going to do and say whatever he can to be able to maintain a tight policy stance. And I don't think that he believed that the banking system was sound and resilient when the words came out of his mouth. But again, I'm I'm going back to my my soapbox. I think that he is is of that, or he he said, you know, he said that that was his view of the banking system before he turned into Jay Powell Esquire, the lawyer, and kept saying that that what was happening in banking was really not at the Fed's doorstep. It wasn't under the Fed's purview. It, this was the responsibility of the FDIC. Um, so I think he's really trying hard to, to deflect Fed policy, to separate Fed policy from what's happening in the banking sector. Right. Okay. So he's what, what is he saying? What is, is his domain and what is he saying is not his domain? Because originally in 1913, the Federal Reserve was started to prevent bank panics, right? It, it was. It certainly was. I mean, in 1907, uh, you know, um, J.P. Morgan himself gathered a bunch of men in his parlor, uh, bankers, and said, "Hey, I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not. You know, I will die one day, and we'll have to be able to have a central bank. We're no longer a developing nation. We are a developed nation. We're going to have to have a central bank so that we can prevent panics and runs in the future. So that is certainly under the Fed's purview. And I would argue, though, that financial stability itself has not been impaired." And that is really what we're talking about now. What we're talking about is the difference between bank failures. Don't get me wrong. I, I, don't, I don't take lightly what's happening in the banking system, but we still have not seen systemic risk break out. Financial stability is not under siege right now. And we have to make that distinction. You have to consider that the stock market's still up, what, what 6% uh, year to date? Um, and bond yields have come in. Right. Okay. So what do, what do you mean when you say financial stability? Let's unpack that because bank lending uh, is, is tightening. It was tightening mm-hmm. before these issues in the banking sector started. And it's certainly uh, the, pace, the pace of tightening has accelerated. Mm-hmm. But when you say it's not tightening, do you mean it's not 2008 where it's sort of one bank falls and then another bank falls? No, I think that there are definitely dominoes lined up. But when I say that it's not systemic yet, it's because we're not reading about contagion in other countries. We're not reading about contagion in other financial systems. We're not reading about, about you know, an AIG being taken down by a Lehman Brothers, which is from one industry to the next. There are issues throughout the financial system. There's more debt in the financial system than there was going into the great financial crisis. 
And that's one of the reasons that we're seeing the fallout that we are today. We knew that it was kindling and it just needed a spark. But the question is, is it contagion? And for the moment, even though we're watching one bank fall after another, it has yet to become contagious. Okay, how much, how many more bank shares have to fall, you know, get get cut in half before it's contagious? So I think, um, look, I I think that part of what we're seeing emanated from the likes of Greg Becker, who was the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, successfully lobbying Congress to not be as heavily regulated as a bank the size of Silicon Valley or First Republic should have been. And had there been more regulatory um, insights, more regulatory, more regulations, higher capital requirements, I don't necessarily think that a lot of the loan books at these banks would have become as concentrated as they were. There were were, a month ago, the top 10 banks in the United States um, ranked by their exposure to commercial real estate. Guess what? Nine in 10 are gone. And that tells you that, you know, boy, do I miss Eric Rosengren, who was the president of the Boston Federal Reserve, who I think was was wrongly ousted from his position, given the small amount of, uh, of, of, of trading compared to Clarida or, or um, Kaplan in, in Dallas. But he... For years, and the reason he was in line to be head of supervision and regulation, the reason that Eric Rosengren's name was being bandied about as replacing Randy Quarles as vice chair of bank and supervision was because he did have a good handle on the banking system. And for years, he had been saying and raising the red flags about too much concentration in commercial real estate, especially at smaller banks. So it's not as if there weren't people that were close to the financial system who were aware of this. It just seems like we've had the wrong policemen on the wrong beats. And I take, I mean, look, say what you will, but something's wrong in the 12th district of the Federal Reserve. It was under Janet Yellen that the subprime crisis blew up in her backyard. And it's under Mary Daly that these regional banks that are overly exposed have not been properly regulated. Danielle, I'm I'm glad you brought that up. The 12th district of, uh, of San Francisco Right. And so, you know, a lot of the uh, banks that are having issues or have failed are from California, First Republic, Silicon Valley Bank. And a lot of the banks that are having issues right now are, are in there, such as, as PacWest, um, uh, Western Alliance. What's going on with California? What's going on in that 12th district? I, I would rather ask the question, what's not going on? And why are regulators not more embedded in those banks and more aware of, again, the concentrations in these loan books. Uh, you know, First Republic had $58 billion of interest-only mortgages. That's a lot. I mean, it, no wonder they became banker to all the wealthiest people in America uh, because they were, the, they were the one-stop shop. They were the one place that you could go ahead and get a five or seven or 10-year interest-only loan for your mansion in the Hamptons or for your villa in Napa. Um, but it was, it was too much. It was too much for one bank. It should have been spread more evenly across the country's banking system. Um, and, and that's what, and, and we saw with Silicon Valley Bank that they were overly exposed to the venture capital industry. Mm-hmm. And 
great. The deposits flowed in. That's understandable, but a more prudent regulator would have recognized that you know you, you, if you're if you're working for Enron Corporation, you probably shouldn't have your entire 401k in Enron stock. And yet, that was the situation with a lot of these banks. And a, a better regulatory apparatus in that 12th district of San Francisco, I think, would have been able to identify these vulnerabilities. And that didn't happen. And. You've been sounding alarm bells about commercial real estate, but there are a lot of banks who have lots of commercial real estate exposure who are doing just fine. And, you know, who are, who are, you know, their shares have not been cut cut in half. I is it is it because is it is it more on the deposit side that just the, the bank run? Some people are calling it bank walk. I I prefer the term bank skip. Uh, you know, hop hop skip and a jump. Is is that sort of the issue? Just people with withdrawing all of their money because you know you look at PacWest and. Their uh, net charge-offs or allowance for like there are tons of East Coast and, and middle of the country banks uh, that have a higher credit default rate than PacWest. It's, it's very low, and and like Silicon Valley Bank, their capital call uh, lending business I think had one default in the history of 30, 30 years. So it's I feel like it's it's a problem that so far it hasn't been credit. And you're talking about credit. I feel like credit the credit issue hasn't even come yet. It's, we're not even yet at the beginning. We are not, and I think that that is something that must be recognized. And if you think about right now, the whole to maturity issue that we've been talking about for weeks, which by the way, is getting a lot better, right? A lot, yes. lot, lot better with this decline in bond yields. You're going to have banks if this continues. And I, I argue that it will continue. Ira Jersey, one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite analysts over at Bloomberg, he took his, uh, he took his forecast for the 10 year yield down to 3% by year end. That's going to, that's going to cure a lot of the ills, regardless of what Federal Reserve policy does between now and the end of the year. If the bond market itself starts to take away some of these interest rate differential issues, but this has nothing to do with the fact that Green Street today came out and said, we're sorry. We understand you don't want to transact in commercial real estate. That cannot take away from the fact that CRE prices are down 15% year over year. So pretending that this credit issue isn't out there. I was listening to my buddy Lucky Lopez um, out in, uh, in Las Vegas today. Kia dealerships are seeing people come in who bought who bought SUVs at $40,000, $50,000 over MSRP. And they're coming in looking for a new car loan and they're $30,000, $40,000 upside down in their car loans. So these are excesses in the system. They were, they were, it, this is bad credit. And it has, we really have yet to see the fallout. We're seeing it on the corporate side. We are, we've got large companies with $50 million or more in liabilities. We're seeing a run rate there. And that doesn't include, um, Christmas Tree Shops, Jenny Craig, Vice Media. Those are three big mm-hmm. ones that are in the queue to, to, to file as soon as this weekend. But even without them, we're seeing corporate, large corporate bankruptcies running at the highest level since 2009. Wow. And all of this to say, uh, Danielle, you, you mentioned that uh, bank assets had been helped by the fact that bond yields had fallen. Ten-year yields have gone down. Two-year yields have gone down. Some of that is the worry about the economy, which you were just referring to. Some of that is pricing in a Fed pivot. So, oh, if there's 100 basis points of cuts priced in over the next year, suddenly my you know securities book is is looking a lot better. But yep. what happens if the Fed doesn't cut? And and that's a, a, a perfect transition to the Federal Reserve did what you know many are saying is likely to be its last hike. Is it going to hike in June? You know, probably not. We'll see. I, I want to hear your, your views on that. But more importantly than the, do they hike is when do they start cutting? So, um, you know, 
maybe I'm going down with this ship, Jack. Uh, maybe I need a life draft. Uh, you know, throw me one of those little donut looking things, lifesavers. I get it. Um, I, I think that the reason that, that Chair Powell in his press conference used the verb consigned as to the debt limit, that is, that, that is an issue that is consigned to the fiscal authorities, is because he doesn't intend to necessarily come to the rescue of the sovereign uh, with this debt ceiling issue in our, in our face. If that's his stance... And if he can watch, again, I'm going to use the words controlled demolition, as long as there's no contagion, as long as there's no financial instability, as long as we're not seeing disorderly days in the market, and we're not seeing disorder. The VIX is at 20, for heaven's sake, and that's up. It was at 15 last week, but we're not seeing disorderly fallout in the financial markets yet. But what, what would the VIX equivalent of the regional bank ETF be? That, that VIX would be at 60 or 100. Of course it would. Of yeah. course it would be. Jack, I'm not denying that we're seeing these insolvencies. And that's exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing insolvencies. But if it's one insolvency at a time, even if it takes down many regional banks and it does not ignite systemic risk. And let me tell you, when you... When we're in a systemic risk situation, you and I will not have to talk about it. Yes. There will be there will be not a scintilla of doubt. We will know it. We will know it if we wake up one day and Lehman Brothers has gone down and 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 Richard Fisher, your boss, is saying, Danielle, what the heck is a Landis Bank in, in Germany? And I'm like, what? What the heck is a land? I don't know what. And they're smaller commercial real estate lenders in Germany, community type banks that happen to have really concentrated holdings of U.S. subprime mortgages at the time. That's systemic risk. It comes from where you're not expecting it to come from, not from the next bank that had that, that was that was lined up that, that that, by the way, traders have targeted mercilessly. And one of the reasons traders are targeting these banks there's a 74% borrow on the bank index. One of the reasons they're targeting them is because they're looking after their book. They want to pressure Powell into this pivot. And they believe that they're going to be able to accomplish that feat, or we would see the stock market acting much worse. We would see an investment grade and high yield spreads gapping out. We're not seeing that. Yeah, it really is such a stark disparity between the sort of carnage in the regional bank stocks and then just the broader market. Yeah, the stock market's doing fine. VIX, you know, 20, 19, 22. Credit spreads, uh, investment grade, high yield, they, they haven't blown out. It really is interesting. And I just want to say, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that this is not 2008, at least not yet. And it's really not even close because there everything was connected and uh, bank A falling, it was counterparted to bank B, counterparted to bank C. Here, the, the, the depositors, when they leave bank A, they go to bank B. So it kind of helps bank B. And also, yeah, these are much smaller banks. But what about the economic impact? I mean, yeah, these, these banks, you know, I mean, Pac, Pac West in, in the first quarter, their new loan originations were, were down something like 80% from the first quarter of 20. Now, not, not representative, but you get a few more Pac West and this, you know, starts to cause some real economic damage. Isn't, isn't that part of Powell's part? And by the way, uh, they, they uh, you know, is, is there a point of, oh, actually, Powell kind of welcomes these bank failures? I'm not saying that he does, but because it tightens credit and he wants t credit to tighten in order to tame inflation. 
He does want Titan to cre- credit to Titan, but he wants credit to Titan not just to tame inflation. A monkey can tell you that inflation's coming down. A blind monkey can tell you that inflation's coming down. But can a blind monkey tell you that private equity is really coming under severe strains? Again, this has not happened in 40 years. Now, we've gone through crises. Some of the worst stock market performance years have been years of crises during a time of zero interest rate policy and quantitative easing that bail out the wealthy and save private equity every single time. We've never crossed this Rubicon with private with the private capital markets being the size that they are. They've they've raised $6.4 trillion in the last five years alone. And they they don't play by any rules. And they make monetary policy, Jack. And Jay Powell knows it. He knows that in March of 2020, he knows damn well that in March of 2020, Jack, that, that the hedge funds that had basically taken over trading in the treasury market because Basel III, other regulations, told banks not to hold this stuff, not to trade this stuff. He knows that, that the entities that had, that had garnered 50% of trading in these, these treasury markets simply turned the lights out. They're like, oh, the ARB isn't there anymore. Bye-bye. See you later. And they stepped back. Now, these are some of the largest entities that are unregulated, that don't play by the rules. This is some of the brain drain after Dodd-Frank when regulations with the Volcker rule, you know, you can't run a hedge fund inside of a bank anymore. The same exact people who were behind the great financial crisis said, well, I can't play by those rules because I don't play by any rules. So I'm going to go create a new universe in which I don't have to play by any rules. And they've never gotten caught. They've had their wrists slapped, but they've never had CalPERS say, you know what? We don't want to to pony up to your next fund. We don't care how big you are. 2022 was the first year of loss in private equity since 2009. And who's to say with commercial mortgage-backed securities issuance down 79% year over year in the first quarter? These were some very badly done deals, but they were badly done deals because they could be, because the traditional banks had stepped out of the business of lending. So let's just say that that Jay Powell knows that the sanctity of the U.S. Treasury market was called into question in March of 2020 because of these non-bank players, and he wants to take the baton back from them and have Federal Reserve policy make monetary policy. Then he can say all day long and on Sundays, the banking system is sound because he wants to maintain interest rates for long enough to make Fed monetary policy making independent again. Very very interesting. Thank you, Danielle. So I think I agree with you on the fundamentals. Private equity, and banks and investors in much the same situation. They bought uh, assets at overvalued rates relative to where interest rates are, and that's a problem. How how are you going to realize those losses? Banks, as you and say, they, 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 they play by the rules. Banks have to, you know, if someone demands their money and say, knock, knock, can I have my money back, please? If it's a demand deposit, they have to give it to them. Private equity, no, as you say, they don't play by the rules. They've written their own rules and they, they are gating withdrawals. And that sounds very negative and scary, and it is. 
but it actually uh, the shadow banking system can be quote safer because no one is allowed to take out their money out. You know that you can always kick the can down the road. Whereas in banks, banks they're not they're trying to kick the can down the road, but they they can't. They're having a lot of issues. You know, that's correct. But would we have the same retail footprints that we have? Some of these retailers going belly up if private equity hadn't have had such an just a massive influence. I'm Joe Q. I've got a great thing going. I've, I've opened up the next hottest retail franchise and I go to the bank for funding and the bank says, no, 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 no. We don't have the balance sheet. We're not in that business anymore. So then you got to go to the private equity guy and the private equity guy says, fine, I'll give you the financing. I'm going to lever you up to your eyeballs, but I'm not going to allow you to only open two locations, two new locations to expand your footprint. I'll only do it if I can write a big check and lever that up and you have to open 10 new locations. Part of, the, and, and that's what I'm saying, Jack. I'm saying that Part of what ails corporate America today is the structure of private equity and the way that they have forced upon so many companies too much leverage and forced them to grow to be too big to where if and when we hit an economic slowdown, the business model absolutely collapses and or worse if we have normalized monetary policy because the entire private equity framework breaks down if Powell maintains high interest rates. And that's my point. That's what I'm trying to get to. And and you think Powell is actively thinking about this. This is something that's motivating his, his policy decision as someone who used to work in private equity himself. I do. And can you imagine? Can you imagine? It's like, sorry, this voicemail box is full. I, I mean, they've all got to be going to voicemail at this point. You wait, had to, wait, wait, I, I think I know what you mean, but explain what you mean. No, I'm saying he's not, he's not picking, he's not taking their calls. You say people who used to work with him are calling him to, for help and he's not picking up their calls. That's of course. Yeah. You just had the head of the new head of Carlisle, which Powell used to work for, announce that they're going to be a little bit more prudent in the way they do business. Think about that for a minute. Powell's former employer. You know what? We're not going to be able to be cowboys anymore. And because, But if Powell was taking the phone call and saying, no, 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 the rules continue to not apply to you. I'll pivot. We'll go back down to zero interest rates and I'll blow up the balance sheet again. I'll buy a bunch of treasuries. And next time I need your help in the treasury market, I'll look the other way when there's not a bid for the long bond in Asian overnight trading, as was the case in March 2020, when these cowboys stepped aside, shut the lights off and said, I don't get the profit. I, I, th this doesn't work for how I do the trade. So I'm, not, I'm just not going to backstop the market. And- He's willing to make several regional banks, some of whom made serious mismanagement, incompetent errors, some of whom maybe did not. He's willing to make those regional banks a sort of sacrifice for his vigilante justice on his former employees. I mean, vigilante justice is um, vigilante justice is a really harsh term, Jack. But but by the same token, he did say there was going to be some pain. And, you know, I, I look back, I look back, Jack, at, at the day that he was renominated in November of 2021, eight days later, later in, in testimony to the Senate Banking Committee, he retired the word transitory, got rid of it because he could, he got that renomination. The day, six months later, almost to the day he finally got confirmed because the Biden administration left him swinging in the wind for almost six months. November the 21st, 2021, he was renominated. May the 12th, 2022, he was reconfirmed with 80 votes in the Senate, by the way. 
held hostage so that so that Biden could put progressives onto the Federal Reserve Board. But the day he the day, May 12th, 2022, he did a marketplace interview in which he said, the rules, the rules have changed. Inflation at 2% is my primary target. And by the way, it might cause a recession. And Fetcher did tell he never does an interview, except at the FOMC. It's very rare for him to be interviewed, except at uh, FOMC pressers or highly specific conferences and events that you know, Fed chair have been going to for many years. That is right. That means that the marketplace interview was pre-scheduled on his schedule. He knew because he's one of the most active, not political, not political, burns my biscuits when people say that, that Jay Powell's political. He's shrewd. He visits mm-hmm. more with lawmakers than any of his predecessors. He's not afraid to go up to the Hill and explain monetary policy and explain what he's, his thinking is. So he's very communicative with Congress, but that doesn't make him political. There's a big difference. So he knew he had those 80 votes. He knew he had those 80 votes because he knew that he had formed good working relationships on both sides of the aisle. So I just want to say the two meanings of the word political. One is, oh, I have left-wing political biases, right-wing political biases, and I'm going to that's going to influence my policy decisions. Mm-hmm. When I, you know, or someone would call Jay Powell political, that's not what that would mean. We're saying he's strategic in the same way you go to the office, you you form alliances with people you work with in order to reach a common goal. That form of political. Would you say that definition is, is applicable or no? I would say that that definition is is that that does define Jay Powell. Yeah, absolutely. It mm-hmm. defines Jay Powell. And it, and, it, and it, it's the president is mandated to to place somebody to nominate somebody for the position of the chair who's going to work with Congress because the Fed exists at Congress's discretion. So you you have to work with them. For heaven's sake, Janet Yellen was supposedly when she was, you know, in the beginning of her tenure at Treasury, they couldn't find her on the Hill. And this was a Treasury secretary. Yeah. Fetcher did tell he's not in the in the econometrics doing algorithms, running the regressions, looking at the models. He's no. he's a relationships driven person. And you can see in the way he sends emails is very direct, you know. It, and it that's is, why he's had so he few dissents. And, and he's bitter. He's bitter against his own staff. Tell you, me about that. Tell me about how so. You heard the condescension in his voice. How many times in that press conference did he say, but those aren't my views? The staff makes good presentations. It's bless their hearts for having their own views. That's not my view, though. Very condescending. This is a staff that led him down the transitory path, a path to hell with their models. And he's made it very clear that he speaks his own mind now. And he's not going to be swayed by people who use great big words, jargon, and calculus and econometrics. He's not going there. Do you, Powell, yesterday, when asked if he had regrets, he, he said that he, he did. He had yeah. several. Do you think one of those regrets was being convinced to go on the transitory path, which, you know, as you called it, a, a path to hell? Well, I think that actually started with this whole, this, this brainchild of average inflation targeting that he rolled out a few Jackson holes a, 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 ago. That's what got him on the path to allowing transitory to be what it was, because the staff had determined with their cute little models that you could let inflation run hot and and average it with past year's inflation, which is the most asinine concept ever. But you can let inflation get out of hand because you're going to average it with prior year's inflation. Really? 
where are real rates today, Jack? Are you going to tell me what real rates are based on nine point something inflation last year or based on the fact that if you look at the, the Dallas trim mean, we're actually negative for, for the last seven months on an annualized basis? Where are real rates? Because they're not what they were based on last year's inflation rate. Yes. Uh, so I just want to say when you're talking about Jay Powell's decision to retire transitory very soon after being confirmed, you're saying he was kind of playing along with the uh, progressive economic view of essentially easy money forever. It's not, but I'm just going to call it that. And once he got confirmed and he's in that seat for, I don't know, four former years, uh, he's saying it's game on. I'm my true beliefs. I'm a hard money man, not a soft money man. And uh, let's time it, it. Let's let's raise rates. It, it's good time. Like it, it's go time. Look, he um, a he's worth one hundred and fifty million dollars. B, he could be worth billions right now as a person, as an individual. Had he stayed in private equity, given the fact that they've printed money these last few years while he's been serving his country since June of 2012, thank you very much. He could have been a billionaire by now, Jack, and he's not. But he's still worth over more than $100 million, meaning he doesn't need the Fed's pension. And he chose to stay in the post, despite the fact that his reputation by then had been shredded, eviscerated by transitory. He was a mock. He knew he was being mocked. And yet he still chose to maintain the path. Is that hubris? Because he doesn't really strike me as being kind of a, you know, a Wall Street type big swing and you know what. That's not how he comes across at all. Right. So so you think those uh, conservative money principles by conservative, I mean, I mean, tight money principles of we need to raise rates kill the Fed, but that's still motivating him. And that applies to, oh, you know, a bank here fails, bank here fails. Guess what? Banks fail, companies fail. That's that's part of uh, life, part of capitalism. You think that is really what his view and that we, you know, it, it would be foolish for us to expect a policy shift uh, from the Federal Reserve to be motivated by what's going on in the banking system. I, I have said from day one, and I was the first person to say Powell will stand his ground. I mean, I, I look, a year ago, people wanted to carry me out in, in a straitjacket, thinking I was just flat out nuts. But I, I saw his resoluteness. I've read the 2012 and 2013 transcripts, and he is a sound money person, and he does not believe in the zero bound. He did get past the 5% threshold. Think about that. In 2018, he got the Fed funds rate up to 2.5%. That left him 2.5 percentage points to ease. He's got double that in his chamber right now, meaning if he needs to take the Fed funds rate down by 300 basis points, he can stop at 2% and say the zero bound was a failed experiment mm -hmm. and stop. And so now he's, he's hit that threshold. And I don't think we can discount that because of the amount of, of, of easing that's been done after the pandemic came, that, that was done at the time. Now, quantitative tightening, quantitative easing, the balance sheet, whole nother story. Oh, yeah, right. So, okay, I, I think that is a, a pretty objective and clear point that, yeah, Powell does not want to go to zero, does not plan to go to zero anytime soon or, or ever. But what about, oh, go back to 300 basis points to help the banks out, help the, the financial system. What gives you confidence that, no, Powell is going to stay at that 5.25% that uh, the, the interest rates are now at as of yesterday? 
Well, you know, the, the New York Fed came out with a, a study in April that said that they planned on the balance sheet being at $6 trillion by the end of 2025 before stopping and taking a break, taking a breather. Um, you know, that's kind of close to the 4, 4.4, 4.5% peak that it reached after the first run at quantitative easing. And my my argument is, and we don't know what ample reserves are, we will find out, but if he he, he cannot in my mind at least, lower interest rates and continue with quantitative tightening. One effort negates the other. But if he gets interest rates up and keeps interest rates up, and that's all he does, just keep them high, then he can continue to shrink the balance sheet, which it's clear that the press corps was gagged again at this most recent press conference It's a known, known, you do not ask certain questions. The statement was unequivocal in stating that the balance sheet runoff would continue, period, and and nobody asked him about it. Okay, so tell me why you you think the press corps is gagging. I just spoke to to Nick Timrose, who I didn't even ask him, but he he volunteered why he doesn't uh, ask the question, which which I'll, I'll incorporate later. But just quickly tell me why, I'll just, I'll just say it. It's, he said it's because um, he knows what the answer is going to be. It's that the, the policy is, is the policy. And, you know, if, as a journalist, you want to ask something where they say something new. And it's the balance sheet is there's nothing new about it. You know, they've been. Well, then why was he pressed about 3% instead of 2%? He's not changing that 2% inflation target. Why, why did why did several reporters ask him the exact same question about whether or not it was really a pause or not? if they knew that they were going to get the answer. I mean, I understand what he's saying, but it's yeah. something of a gentleman and a gentlewoman's agreement. And if you really want to press him about that, I'm, I maintain that you might not get invited back. Okay. Well, uh, uh, Mike McKee asked some hardball. Steve Leisman asked a real hardball yesterday. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to take a best. They're going to be invited back. Right. They, I'm just I, playing devil's advocate. I'm not, yeah. I didn't say you couldn't ask hard questions. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you can't deviate from the subject matter at hand. There's a difference. Mm-hmm. And if balance sheet policy is not on the table for discussion, it's not on the table for discussion. If you press him on a subject he's not willing to discuss, it's, 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 I won't even say it's poor form. I would just say that, that you would be identified. And you think that would apply to senior reporters who you know you and I would easily recognize not just uh you know someone my age who got lucky enough to ask a question who's, who's no more look Pedro da Costa um pressed Janet Yellen about the source of the the medley um scandal at the Fed he was shown the door yeah so I, I do think that there are lines that can be crossed for senior reporters hey there sorry to interrupt Announcement. Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did Permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, Hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods 345. I hear you. 
I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Right. Okay. So t tell me on, on the balance sheet, what are the questions that, that you would ask if there was no gag and you, you had, you know, an hour with Jay Powell, you, you had your own podcast, you were interviewing Jay Powell, he's telling you whatever you want. What would you ask about, about the balance sheet? Well, I would want to know more the framework and thinking after 2019, which forced the not QE because the market was starting to beg for quantitative easing, the big kahuna, which the pandemic gave him the excuse to relaunch, I would want to know how the framework had changed between then and now. The forensics that had been done by the New York Markets Desk to better understand and appreciate the ample reserve regime, where they feel that ceiling is in terms of, excuse me, where, where they feel that floor is, how much the balance sheet can be shrunk. I don't necessarily want to know a level. I want to know how they're thinking about it differently than they were before. I'd want to know if, if, if there would be a consideration for tapering quantitative tightening, for perhaps saying, you know, as after December 2023, you know, if, if, the, if the recession's bad enough, if we're starting to see some real liquidity issues throughout the financial system, if you would consider going from 60 billion treasuries per month, and by the way, they're almost on target there, if they would consider going from 60 billion in treasuries to 30 billion and then to 10 billion, I would want to know what their game plan was for extricating themselves from quantitative tightening, if that was going to be the same thing as quantitative easing. Mm -hmm. so you think that there is a just pattern for the Federal Reserve to get stuck in a certain policy. If they're doing QE, they tend to get stuck doing QE. And if they do QT, they tend to uh, get stuck doing QT until the, uh, there's a disaster, and then they stop doing it, and then they start doing more QE, and it's just one extreme to to another extreme. By the way, QE, quantitative easing, uh, increasing the Fed's balance sheet, quantitative tightening, decreasing the Fed's balance sheet in, in a long, sustained way, not lending, but actually buying and selling. Right. And we're, we're about to, I mean, you know, wh while you and I are speaking, we're about to see $50 billion roll off that balance sheet while we yeah. speak. Yep. Uh, because of First Republic's borrowings that are probably going to be... No, no, no. I'm not even referring to that. I'm just saying, oh. I'm, I'm just talking about pure treasury uh, runoff that uh, as of the April 30 maturity that will be reported um, in the current week. Yeah. And so how do you think quantitative tightening, uh, which you know I think began in full s s uh, swing last summer, uh, the $95 billion a it rolled, month. It rolled up to, it, start, it started in, in September at full throttle. And I, by I, the I, way, now you're going to see prepayment speeds begin to to increase. So you're going to see more mortgage-backed security roll off. So it, it will accelerate. That's interesting. And how would you say that has affected the market? Because, okay, you talk about offices. Everyone knows what an office is. You talk about mortgage. Oh, I've, I have a mortgage for my house. It's very easy, you know, a, a car loan. I wrap my head around that. But Quantitative easing, and you know, even for people who talk about it, you know, pretty much every day, like myself, it's very hard. How have you seen sort of the effects of the quantitative tightening that started at full throttle uh, uh, in September play out over the over the past you know six nine months? So I think we've seen it play out in the money supply, and <laughs> and it hasn't been as painful as it should have been by now because with you know M two is growing at the lowest level since nineteen thirty seven. When it's negative, was, right? Sorry? Is, 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 isn't it negative ne now? Negative, negative 4.03 ne uh, year over year. That is the most negative since, um, since 1937. And by the way, it's always been in recession, not, not going into recession. 
It's been in recession. In fact, my, my, my favorite uh, GDP model, now I sound like I'm talking like an economist, but my favorite GDP model is a guy by the name of Ben Herzon, who started off at Macroeconomic Advisors. He basically designed the GDP model where you impute with every single data release what your GDP forecast is. He took his down for the current quarter to negative 0.1 today based on the fact that there were so many fleet automobile sales as opposed to retail automobile sales. Is so it nominal or real? Nominal. Sorry? Is it real or nominal? Real. 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 Okay, negative 0.1. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't sound great. No, and, we're, and, and we, saw, we saw massive negative revisions to the, control, the, the controlled group within retail sales for the months of January and February. So his revised uh, first quarter estimate right now sitting at 1.1%. That could easily get re- revised away once we see where the dust settles on those March revisions. We could e- that's what I'm saying. We could easily be in recession right now. Yes. And I want to sort of preempt something that some audience members may be thinking. Quantitative tightening removes reserves from the system uh, directly, not deposits, which is M2, but they are related because when they reserve reserves from the system, suddenly the, the banks have to re- replace uh, um, those assets. They have too much collateral, so they sell their collateral and then uh, to, to people who have bank deposits. So they are related. So I, I just want to uh, clarify that. So Danielle, is, is your view, A, those banking issues are kind of overblown. Yeah, one or two, a handful may, uh, you know, fail in the same way first republic but it it is really not that big of a deal or two or sorry or two or b uh no they will fail it will be quite severe not 2008 systemic you know globally systemically you know people in spain are having issues because of the banking issues in america not systemic but it will be quite severe like uh you know the the savings and loan crisis or something but jay powell is not going to do anything about it and he shouldn't do anything about it he's not going to save the banks the regional banks I think that we are going to see more fallout. Um, absolutely. Again, uh, you know, as the guy at Green Street said, I'm sorry, but CRE prices are down 15% year over year. You can't do anything about it. So the loans are also not on the books at the right levels, in addition to the interest rate differential that is, that is again, shrinking. I will say, however, I had a good friend of mine today posit that, that, that rural America has been run over roughshod Think about that. Think about what Ford and General Motors are doing to smaller dealerships in small towns, basically pulling financing, making them close. So now you've got to drive to town. My mom was from a very small town in Texas, but now you've got to drive to town to get your your, your pickup truck serviced. That's going to be your closest Ford dealership. So people in small town America are pretty angry. And I would guess, and right now, Randy Woodward's somewhere smiling, I would guess that there's going to be a lot of it's a wonderful life moments in the communities where they're not a bunch of it's not Megan and Harry and Oprah. They're not a bunch of depositors with more than $250,000 sitting in a bank. I would posit that you're going to see communities come to the rescue of their own community banks before them before they're wiped off the planet. Danielle, you know Randy's watching this right now. I know. I know. Randy just loves that. I, look, we're going to save the community banks. We have to save the community banks because we already know that, you know, from, from, from a Bloomberg headline that, that, that the footprint of First Republic is very similar to that um, micro geography wise as to that of JP Morgan. And that, look, those, those branches will disappear. Yep. And, you know, First Republic, I mean, they lent a lot to, you know, mansions in the Hamptons. First Republic, I think, you know, many years ago made a mortgage uh, to Mark Zuckerberg, founder of Facebook. 
I think at 1%, a little over 1%. I mean, this is just ridiculous. It is. And it smacks of the haves and the have nots. And that's why I go back, Randy Woodward, to the fact that I think I think we might be able to save quite a few of the smallest banks that that provide lending for communities and that we might not necessarily miss some of these regionals that are going away because of the way some of them built their businesses. I'm going to be the go-to for every wealthy person in America. Great, wonderful. What's what good are you doing again? And and you're going to do it by lobbying Congress so that you don't have any regulatory over overwatch. Great, wonderful. Yeah, and they are, you know, the, crony capitalism has a lot of, um, you know, connotations, but it is a crony thing where the reason they gave Mark Zuckerberg a loan is a favor so that they they do business with him in another thing. It's it's called tying, and uh, in some parts it's it's you know forbidden, in other parts of the banking it's it is uh, allowed. And Silicon Valley Bank did a lot of tying. I mean, there are a lot of venture capitalists who they had their bank, you know. They, they banked with Silicon Valley Bank, and that was a profitable business for Silicon Valley Bank. As a, as a result, they got a mortgage at you know 100 basis points below what anyone else. I mean, it is it is it is a little ridiculous. Um, so Danielle, you said we are going to save the bank. I presume some sort of you know American institution is are going to save those community banks, and we should save those. By no, we, I'm, 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 I'm literally talking about it's a wonderful life, like like individuals coming to the rescue of small banks and making sure that. That, that the loans are money good. I'm not saying it's going to happen everywhere. We're going to lose some, some small and community banks, but there are a lot of Americans right now who are watching this unfold, who are going to have sons and daughters lose their jobs. Um, and, and, and who, you know, there are, there are a lot of people who are going to stand up and say, we have taken enough. And we're not going to let you take away one more aspect of why we're not city folk. Well, I hope you're right, Danielle. But I think there is a systemic issue that, you know, individual per- per- people's uh, uh, motivations aside, these community banks have to uh, uh, pay more for deposits than J.P. Morgan or Bank of America because there's just a flight to those big money center banks that are in the big cities, um, and they're not earning enough on their loans to really make up for that. I mean, what institution is going to help those community banks, you know, if at all, is it, if it's not the Federal Reserve, is it the FDIC? Is it Treasury? Is it uh, you know, some other acronym I've never you heard would of? Think, you would think that that would be an act of Congress, but that would certainly be a popular thing for a politician yeah. to do. Because and totally opposite of the 2008 bank bailouts, where you had giant multinational banks with you know headquarters you know, in Zurich, all offices all around the world, Tokyo, Zurich, uh, you know their equity holders, shareholders were bailed out. Totally different than depositors being bailed out of small community banks that you know the stocks don't even trade. Totally different. Think of the kerfuffle when Janet Yellen was asked the question mm. uh, from the congressman from the state of Oklahoma. That thing yep. went viral. Yeah. Let them go. Let them eat cake. Let them go. Who needs these small banks? Well, you know what? The communities need the small banks. Yeah. And what does it say when a bank that's you know, headquartered in Silicon Valley has a lot of venture capital loans, but you know, it does make mortgages to you know, billionaires and millionaires at 1%, 2%. That's declared a systemically important institution that doesn't get that uh, um, uh, you know, the exemption that you, you can give me the proper name for, I forget. But community banks that are actually making loans to, to people who need it, uh, they're not. And by the way, a lot of these, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about, there are some, there are some community banks that are larger community banks that 
financed you know, skyscrapers in San Francisco and in New York City. Mm-hmm. I ain't talking about them, Jack, at all. Yeah, and they're, they're, they're banks that are not community banks that have the word community bank in them. <laughs> but, right. Yeah. They're not serving their communities. They're serving, they're serving themselves. Yes. So I'm not referring to them, but I am referring to, to banks that are able to do due diligence and run the credit of people because they know their money good. And it's not because of their credit score. It's because they've known their family for generations. Hey there. Sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto. Some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com sign up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code guidance10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. So... Daniel, yesterday, in addition to being asked, what are you going to do about the banks? Are the banks in healthy condition? Uh, to which you know, Powell said, you know, not really my problem, dodge responsibility. Uh, he was also asked about the debt ceiling. And he had a similar answer where he said, that's the treasury's role. And by the way, if you ask about the consequences of the debt ceiling, we can't even think about that. So he basically said, you know, not my job. I want to hear your thoughts. How did you interpret that as it happened? And, and also, uh, Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, recently said that the you know, date at which the U.S. Uh, will run out of money is going to be really soon, and uh, that is causing a lot of drama. I want to get your thoughts on that as well. So I, I think um, I think Yellen is is becoming a little bit uh, a little bit more political, a little late in her role, but she's definitely playing the uh, she, she's definitely playing the strong arming right now and trying to expedite the calendar role. Uh, she doesn't want to be the treasury secretary who shuts down the national park system, the Smithsonian and, and furloughs a bunch of government workers, but that can happen. And when you consider how far apart, $5 trillion nearly, what $4.8 trillion of spending cut suggestions that came from the GOP versus the Democrats who want to raise spending. So when you consider how far, how wide the aisle is between the two political parties, uh, it, it, it's going to take a lot to, uh, to, to make these negotiations happy, happen, excuse me. And, it, and there's a very, maybe it's a 10% chance that the United States actually does default on its debts. Of course, if that happens, it would be really bad. Uh, you know, the the credit rating of the country would get would get taken down, which, by the way, took took Treasury yields down when S and P did it back on August fifth, two thousand and eleven, because there was a flight to safety. Yeah, yields down, prices up. So Treasuries rallied even as their credit worthiness was degraded, which is paradoxical, but yeah. It, and 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 that's what happened. Yeah. But I, I think that if we went to the brink and went over the brink, that just like government workers who are furloughed get back pay if we went right over that cliff and skipped an interest payment 
and the world ended and everybody in Washington said, oh my God, I'm not going to get reelected. My lobbyists are mad at me. If then it was resolved with entitlement reform, by the way, because that can happen, um, then we would go back and make those interest payments. We would make them up. So there would not be a technical, there, there would be a technical default, but there wouldn't be a missed interest payment. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when you say uh, Janet Yellen discovering her role you know, later as a politician, what do, what do you mean by that? Just to uh, put a point on it. Well, she's, look, um, some people think that the debt limit X date is not until the fall, not mm-hmm. until September or October. I mean, for heaven's sake, California's income taxes, federal income taxes don't have to be paid until October the, f- the 15th. So money will come in. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's 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 quarterly tax payments that are coming in at the end of June as well. So it, it's not going to be popular. The emergency measures might begin to feel more like a great big emergency, but the X date's not in June. But for her to say that the X date is within days, within weeks, I mean, that's that's playing politics. So it's kind of like, you know, a high school principal needs the form by, uh, you know, September 1st, but they say, they t- email all the p- kids and the parents, we need it by July 1st, just to have a little bit of wiggle room. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and she's, she, look, I think that, I think that, I think that First Republic might have uh, gone down a week prior and maybe they want it for that to be resolved on a Monday instead of on a Friday. Maybe they wanted to see if the probability of that rate hike uh, on May 3rd would go down enough to strong arm Jay Powell into not putting through that last 25 basis point rate hike. Didn't happen. And by the way, Austin Goolsby didn't dissent. Mm, yeah. Uh, so, uh what do you think are the consequences of Jay Powell saying that he's not going to to do anything? I mean, officially, you know, central bank independence. Yeah, it's it's not it's not his issue. I mean, he's he's doing his his role, right? He is technically he. It's not his obligation to to be a politician. He's an unelected official, so it's it's not. He, he's under no obligation to satisfy the, the debt payments of the United States of America. There, in fact, he was part of a task force assigned to to investigate how the Fed could be of assistance since they do happen to own a ton of treasuries. Um, you know, maybe you don't, you know, may, maybe, maybe they provide grace on the treasuries on the Fed's balance sheet and such that, you know, if worse comes to worse, you can pay the interest on the public debt as opposed to the interest that the Fed holds. But he's saying he's not even going to go there. All right. So sounds like you support uh, Powell's insistence that you know the, the regional banking uh, system has to figure it out but by itself they've got the FDIC they've got the treasury you support that uh however credit is tightening and we've got the the debt ceiling and you know you've been flagging all these recessionary issues for a long time it does sound like you know the next year is going to be pretty chaotic is that fair to say look i think that this is going to be a really ugly recession i do i mean i was i was howling on twitter when Jay Powell made the most idiotic statement of his entire career a few years ago, when he was like, you know what? I think we've gotten to the point where the United States never has to have a recession again. I'm like, what did you just say? Clearly he's trying to sell that soft landing to this day, but he doesn't believe that anymore. And I I have to wonder why he said that, but it was the stupidest thing he ever said. And we know that there's going to be recession and we know that it's going to be painful 
But if we can get back to what we were talking about before, you know, there's something to be said for taking the reins back and controlling monetary policy again as the Federal Reserve, as opposed to having, you know, a man who makes $1.3 billion dictate what a year dictate what monetary policy should be. Right. Danielle, so I, you know, you have been a critic, stern critic of the Federal Reserve's easy money policy since the great financial crisis. So, you know, so much so you wrote a book about it called Fed Up, which, which people should check out. I want to applaud your consistency for it now that the Federal Reserve's policy is restrictive. It is tight money. And Fed Chair Powell is, is not going to sort of you know, uh, uh, bend to whatever monetary crisis is, is going on. You support Jay Powell. So I want to applaud your consistency of you know, not constantly criticizing the Fed regardless of what, because you know, there are types of people who they say that, you know, the rates were too low. And they're like, Jay Powell's rates are way too low. And then he raises by 500 basis points and they say, rates are too high. You know, it's it's like sometimes, sometimes you know, people, there's people to whom the Fed rules are, you know, can't win. That That's true. And he's being absolutely crucified and vilified right now. But look, I'm sorry. In March of 2022, 25 basis points. The next meeting, 50 basis points. The next meeting, 75 basis points in June of 2022. At some point, you might start to take the guy seriously. And yet, so many continue to make loans as if the zero bound was imminent. Yeah, correct. And they said, oh, there's no way there's another 75. I mean, the market's only pricing in a 50. And it's like, well, tomorrow the market's pricing in a 75. And now it's another 70. And it's and, it's and amazing is, how many times that happened. Um, but now and, and, we are he, at the end of the, we are at the, end of the hiking cycle. He, he successfully, every single time, the financial media, and they say it every single time, this is going to be the last one, he's able to get his chief lieutenants out there in the media saying, you know what? We're going to go. There's justification for it. You know, he said at the podium yesterday, even though jobless claims are going up fast, even though layoff announcements are coming in fast and furiously, he doesn't believe it. And I don't think he believes it. So call him. Hopefully he's got his hand behind his back with his fingers crossed. But he still said there's still 1.6 openings, job openings for every capable American. He's still referencing and he's still saying inflation is just too high. So he... You, you could see a situation where if the stock market was to rally hard from today on and this banking situation was to, because, right, two weeks ago we were like, what banking crisis? Banking crisis? No banking. It's a tremor. It's a, it's a little yeah. bit of stress, Danielle. Come it's on. a little something, something, whatever. But if there's a similar kind of insouciance, if there's just a similar kind of, we're, we got this, we got this covered, you could make a case for a June 14th rate hike. Because he's paying it. He doesn't talk about it, but he's paying attention to financial conditions. Likely the pause is already here. Yesterday was last the last hike in this hiking cycle, but the door is open is what you're saying. It's not a 0% chance. The door is open. All I'm saying is that financial conditions ease considerably from here on out. If you see some, I mean, we've seen a very, there was a short window of time that you saw investment grade corporate bond issuance and even junk bond corp, corporate issuance zoom back up. That means the capital markets are open. Rem remember what caused the initial Powell pivot. The high-yield market quit issuing bonds for a record 41 days. This time it went 25 days, but then it opened back up. Again, this is not systemic. We're not seeing issuance markets completely freeze over.
We're seeing bankruptcies, but for viable borrowers, the capital markets are still open. Yes. And in, you know, inflation is still high, even though, as you say, a, a blind monkey can tell that it's going down. Danielle, I just want to close, you, you, you know, summarize your view on how interest rates uh, um, can stay high, but the Federal Reserve will, will stop doing quantitative tightening and how that ties into the Bernanke doctrine, which you, know, you taught me about, but I always need a reminder of, of what that is. So what's the Bernanke doctrine? How does that apply to the sort of delicate balance between keeping rates high or continuing to uh, decline the balance sheet or both? So the Bernanke doctrine, which I can guarantee you Jay Powell does not buy into, predicates that you have rates at the zero bound before you can launch large-scale asset purchases, which is how the Fed used to refer to quantitative easing. So one must precede the other. If you were to back that up, then in theory, you could not be lowering interest rates while at the same time shrinking the balance sheet because you would be easing on one hand and tightening on the other. So maybe, maybe maybe we get the Powell Doctrine. Danielle, it's always a, pl- a pleasure to have you here. Uh, any any parting words for for our audience? Look, it's going to get ugly. It's going to get ugly. But if if we can keep our eye on the ball, if we can possibly break the the, the grip that private equity has on on the financial markets, on allocating capital, on hyper-leveraging up companies and then watching them go bankrupt, which hurts small-town American, on enriching themselves, which increases the inequality divide. This recession will be painful. It will be really, really painful. But we're going to eventually have to weather a painful recession to get to the other side. And if it requires Jay Powell to stay the course and keep interest rates at a high level and continue to unwind the Fed's balance sheet through this recession, then I think we should try and keep our eye on the ultimate goal here, and that is to make monetary policy independent again and to narrow the inequality divide that's opened up because Wall Street makes monetary policy. So I, I do have a final question. You talk about private equity. I think a sibling to private equity is uh, private debt. So the you know purchasing or origination of loans that banks would make, but they're real money loans, uh, you know, made from a fund instead of from a bank. You're having a lot of chief investment officers of private debt funds go on the you know the, the channels, uh, the financial news channels, and say, "We are so thrilled. This time is a really exciting time to have a private debt fund because." Banks are stressed, so they're selling us loans at 15% yields, and you know our investors are going to get a great return. To me, it sounds like there are many uh, you know things about that argument that make sense. What what's missing there? What what do you think about that? Well, first of all, so I think I think private credit is going to have a little bit of a growing pain here, fastest growing asset class we've ever seen in our lifetimes, 1.5 trillion dollars right now. Um, I think that there probably were some bad loans made early on. Uh, in, in in the infancy of this sector, but by the same token, they can take out private equity for pennies, pennies on the dollar. What do you mean take out? Like companies, they can take out companies that are backed by private equity and get big, fat, healthy yields. And they can take business away from the banks and they can dictate the terms to the borrowers. Mm-hmm. I've actually had a, a complete shift in my thinking about private credit because of the moment that we're in, because they can get these really high yields for their 
for, for public pensions. Public pensions could, in theory, I'm writing about this today, which is why you just asked me an electric question. Jack, you just hit. I'm oh, glad. That was the hot button, Jack. They don't have to say, they, they don't have to take it anymore as as, as a lender. Because borrowers these last few years have been like, covenants? You can't yeah. put any covenants on us. No, no. I think private credit is going to have a larger footprint and that they're going to be sounder investments for public pension funds and public pension funds are going to be able to shed their alternative weight, get rid of these private equity holdings, get rid of these alternative holdings. Hell, get rid of public equities that they hold because they'll be able to get duration, asset liability matching, put 20% of their of their assets in these private credit funds. They already own public pensions already have a 68% footprint in the private equity, private, excuse me, private credit market. And they can take their other 80% if Jay Powell holds the line and stick it in cash or put it in, you know what, everybody's like, who's going to buy the tenure? And I'm like, well, I, I think you're going to have pensions lined up around the block if the Fed's not conducting quantitative easing, because they're going to be able to get out of the high risk, high risk poker game that they're in by being knee deep in leveraged gated private equity funds and be able to be in private credit going forward. And they're not going to be covenant light anything. They're going to be actual loans to operating companies throwing off cash flow because right now banks are not able to lend. I think that this is going to be the next frontier of lending. I agree with you. And I think, you know, key point of finance is it's all about the price. If you had a bank make a loan, a commercial real estate loan against an office building at a 5% yield, maybe they're not being compensated well enough for that risk. And the risk is there, as you've talked about. But for a 20% yield, that sounds like a pretty good deal. So new investors into private credit, that that could be a good opportunity. Not saying it's particularly good for society, perhaps, but for, for new new investors, it's good. But what about investors who are, you know, as you say, it's the asset uh, class had has uh, um, you know multiplied so much. Who yep. who who bought in in 2021 when the private credit funds were were uh, making your loans at six percent instead yep. of twenty percent? Oh, and and by the way, you have this whole volatility laundering thing about. Oh, guess what? I've never had a default on my loan ever. In the same way, private equity people say that I'm less volatile than the S and P 500. It's like yeah, because you market once a year. Again, I think there will be hiccups along the way. I yeah. think there will be some blowups, but I think in general, because they're going to be able to conduct sound lending, you don't have to hyper leverage up right now. You can just go out there and get the yield. It's, it's not a zero interest rate environment where you've got to pile on the leverage in order to make any kind of a yield. You don't have to double, triple, quadruple down. You can just get a good yield, period, and no covenants. So they're going to be sounder loans than the type of financing that private equity has provided in recent years. I, I'm all for it. I'm all for it. And, and, I, and, I, and it would be a safer investment than some of the go-go juice that our public pensions are invested in. And that's why you saw so many of these public pension managers at the Milken Fund, at the Milken Conference, come out and say they're white on rice. They're yep. all kinds of ready for this because they've had covenant light shoved down their throats for a generation now. Yeah, that, that was that was great timing. <laughs> that conference. Um, Danielle, a pleasure as always to, to hear your insights. Thank you so much for coming on. 
Thank you everyone for watching. People should uh, ch follow your work at Demartino Booth on Twitter. And where can they find your, your, your work of uh, QI research? So please come to demartinobooth.substack.com. I am enjoying my new my new home at Substack very much. Uh, it's a great platform, and I'd love to have you uh, come be. It's fifty nine bucks a month, or it's five hundred and ninety five dollars a year. They tell me it's stupid cheap, but I ain't changing the prices. So come come become a member of the QI community, please. There we go. Thanks again. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and Blockworks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.